my title today is a term that you probably hear me use quite a bit. It's one of my favorite terms. I thought I coined this term, and actually, uh, over time, I've realized, actually, there's a lot of people that use this term, and maybe I just thought I, I just probably got it from osmosis from someone else, but the title of the sermon is The Cross-Shaped Life. It is indeed the life Jesus is inviting us into. It's the only kind of Christian there is, is someone who is on the journey of increasingly living a shape that it, a life that is cross-shaped and Calvary-formed towards God, towards one another. And uh, it comes from our passage of the week today, which is in Matthew 16, verses 13 through 20. But uh, rather than using Matthew's version, I'm going to utilize Luke's version of this conversation because there are some things that Luke emphasizes that are impressed upon me today to share with you. So uh, we're going to go to Luke chapter 9, verses 18. We'll actually end up going all the way through verse 27, but we'll pause a couple times. There's a couple spaces where I want to make a few comments. Once when Jesus was praying alone with only his disciples near him, he asked them, who do the crowds say that I am? They answered, well, John the Baptist, that's one of them. Others, Elijah, because many Jews in the first century believed Elijah was coming back at the end of the age. So they were associating Jesus with Elijah. And still others, that one of the ancient prophets has arisen. Then he said of that, he said, he said to them, enough of that, who do you say that I am? Peter answered, the Messiah of God. Jesus sternly ordered and commanded them not to tell anyone. I want to pause there. In the first century, in Jewish life and culture, there was a very common belief that most Jews shared that, the, that God was raising up a Messiah figure to rescue and save Israel. That for so long, Israel has been under the bondage of pagan foreign powers. And there's coming a point God's going to step in and intervene. He's going to raise up a Savior, a Deliverer of some kind. And they called Him the Messiah, the Anointed One. And this, this man uniquely is going to be anointed by God. He's going to be the one through whom God is going to uh, lead us into victory over our enemies, reestablish the national sovereignty of the nation of Israel, which at this point technically did not exist. But we're going to once again have our own king on the throne, ruling and reigning over our own sovereign nation, no longer under the power and taxation of a foreign empire. We are ourselves once again, and this Messiah will usher in an era of shalom, peace, not just over Israel, but over the whole earth. So they had this, this vision of Messiah, but their prevailing assumption was that this Messiah was going to be a military conqueror just like King David or just like Judah Maccabee. That was their vision of who Messiah was going to be. He's going to be uh, our own version of Alexander the Great, our own version of Caesar Augustus. And they were longing for this Messiah to come. And it's interesting to me that Jesus, in this uh, portion of this conversation, he affirms to them, yes, I am the Messiah you've been waiting for and longing for. But in the very next breath, he tells them, 
But keep this to yourselves. Don't go out talking about this publicly. Why, why did he do that? Well, it's because the prevailing assumption was that this Messiah figure was going to be a military hero, a, a conquering warrior, which is totally antithetical to what Jesus actually has come to do. And so if Jesus had just shown up on the public stage shouting to everyone who will listen, I am your Messiah, it's going to cause, you can imagine, major complications for what he's actually wanting to do. For one thing, it will probably result in his crucifixion much sooner than he wants to go through that. So he's buying time by telling even his disciples who, are, who have their own mixed up ideas, he's telling them, keep this to yourselves, keep this under wraps, don't broadcast this, let's keep it here. Does that make sense? Let's continue on. He's pick, picking it up in verse 22. He commanded them not to tell anyone, saying, and he uses this term, the Son of Man. This is a messianic title. It's a synonym for Messiah. The Son of Man must undergo great suffering and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and scribes and be killed, on the th be killed and on the third day be raised. And as we're going to see in a moment, this is completely the opposite of what they were expecting. Even his disciples. Verse 23, Then he said to them all, If any wish to come after me, let them deny themselves and take up their cross daily, and follow me. For those who want to save their life will lose it. And those who lose their life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit them if they gain the whole world but lose or forfeit themselves? Those who are ashamed of me and of my words, of them the Son of Man will be ashamed when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Now, why does Jesus need to warn them about not being ashamed? Well, it's embarrassing to believe in a Messiah who's going to be killed, first of all. And it's especially shameful in the context of their first century worldview for their supposed Messiah to be crucified on a Roman cross, of all things. Especially in light of what it says in Deuteronomy, anyone who hangs upon a tree is cursed by God. And furthermore, to, to say even following that, yes, that is Messiah and I'm following him. It's not only embarrassing, it's going to be extremely painful for these men to even process, let alone embody this, this new direction that is completely opposite of how they've been formed to think and live throughout their entire lives. And so Jesus tells them right here on the front end, don't be ashamed of this. What you're about to see and witness, don't be ashamed of it. It's going to look weak. It's going to look pathetic. But resist that way of thinking because you're not looking at this right. Don't be ashamed. And then finally, in the last verse we're going to look at, Jesus says something rather puzzling here in verse 27. Indeed, truly I tell you, there are some standing here who will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. Now what does that mean? We're going to keep that on the screen for a couple minutes. What does that mean? Because at first glance, it can, seem to, it can seem to mean what Jesus is telling his disciples is, hey, some of you guys are not going to die until you see me return in glory, until you, until you see in what we call the second coming. And the problem with that is Jesus still hasn't returned and established his kingdom in complete fulfillment. 
So either Jesus is wrong here because all of the disciples died a long time ago and he still hasn't returned, or he must be referring to something else. And since I've got good reasons to believe Jesus is the Son of God and he wouldn't be wrong, there must be an alternative explanation here. So without going too deep in this, let me give you the three possible alternatives. First of all, Many people believe what Jesus is referring to in these two verses is, first of all, they believe he's referring to the transfiguration, which is actually what Luke tells us about in the very next passage. He says it happens eight days later. You remember the story where Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, they go up the mountain, and, and they're praying, and then all of a sudden, Jesus is transfigured, and Moses and Elijah appear, and, and Jesus' face is shining like the sun. And Peter's like, hey, let's build a tabernacle for all three of you guys. And the father speaks from the heavens and says, I think in the, in the Greek it says, shut up. Listen, this is my son. Listen to him. I don't know about you. That sure seems like the son of man shown in glory to me. And so many people say, well, this must be what Jesus is referring to. He's talking about his transfiguration. The problem with that is, why does Jesus make such a big deal out of telling them, some of you are not going to die until you've seen this event, if he's referring to something that's going to happen like a week later. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? So there's a second alternative. This one I think a little bit more plausible, and that is many people believe he's talking about his resurrection. The, the literal, physical, resurrected Christ walking through walls with nail prints in his hands, defying physics. That sure looks like the Son of Man revealed in glory, and it is. But the problem with that is also similar. Why does Jesus go out of his way to talk about how some of you aren't going to die until you've seen this event that he's referring to, if it's the resurrection? Because by that point, only one of them will have died, and that was Judas by his own hand. And yet the language he's using there suggests that at least some of them, maybe even most of them will have died, yet some of them will remain alive once they witness what he's referring to. So again, there's tension with that view. The third view, which I think is the most plausible, but it's the least heard, is this. Scholars have pointed out that in the apocalyptic literature of that day, which is a very popular form of literature during the 200 years before and after Jesus' life, in that style of literature, this phrase, coming in glory, always referred to some kind of judgment. And so many scholars on that basis and, and with some other foundational reasons, they believe what actually Jesus is referring to, what he has in mind, is what will happen roughly 40 years later when Jerusalem is destroyed by the Romans. And one of the things that lends credence to that view is that in Matthew 24, Jesus explicitly connects this exact same language to the destruction of the temple which happened in 70 AD. What was the temple? The temple was the center of Israeli life and culture. Everything orbits around the temple. It's the center of the sacrificial system. But, it, but the Romans in 70 AD destroy the temple, raise it to the ground, never to be rebuilt again, and puts a definitive end to that era of Jewish history. And it's as if God is saying, folks, listen, I've been telling you about this. The regime has changed. I'm doing something new. It's no longer based on ethnicity. It's no longer based on circumcision. It's no longer based on temple sacrificial worship. It's based on allegiance to my son. So that was a definitive marker 
of this new kingdom movement that has already been inaugurated upon the, 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 the coming of Christ. So that's the view I find the most plausible, just my two cents. It's not a theory I'm, I find worth dying for, so it's okay if you disagree with me. And it's not even what I'm here to preach on, so what am I even doing? But, um, but it's in our passage. I felt like it would be good to at least give you some perspective on that because it causes a lot of questions. Now, let's pray for just a moment center our hearts, and then I'll step into what we're going to talk about. One more time, God, we come before you humbly. We come to receive. And in order to receive, we've got to be empty. We've got to be empty, first of all, of just common everyday life things that float through our minds. But we also need to be empty of our own assumptions that may conflict with what you want to speak or at the very least hold them loosely and i pray that over our people today i pray that over myself as we enter into this text lord may we hold our ideas and assumptions loosely and invite you god to fill us with your wisdom and your truth and your spirit directed insight and speak to the very core of our being, whatever you might say to us individually and as a family, as a church, and may it find good soil. All of those rocks and thorns cleared away that could choke the word, and may it find good soil, sprout, bear fruit for your kingdom. In Jesus' name, amen. Discipleship is a journey. Discipleship is not a status. So often we talk of discipleship as a status, like it's a card we put in our wallet so we can show it to someone. No, 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 no. I've been discipled. I took a class at my church for four weeks, and I have been discipled successfully, and I've moved on. No, my, my friend. <laughs> it's a lifelong expedition to the moment you take your life, your last breath, you, if you're following Jesus authentically, you are still growing and changing. You're still a work in progress. And it's best we get on board with that idea. It's an ongoing journey. It's an ongoing hike with Jesus. And all along the way, there are unexpected twists and turns that we don't anticipate. And if we're following Jesus authentically... Some of the ideas that we began this journey with, eventually we realize that's not worth holding on to. How many of you have been there? So viewpoints, perspectives, theology will need to be changed. It'll need to grow. It'll need to develop. Otherwise, we get stuck. Discipleship is a journey. And our own disciples in this passage, I think, are illustrations of this point. When they began their journey with Jesus, they shared a common assumption that was correct, that God's hand is uniquely on this person, Jesus of Nazareth, and I want to give up my fishing business and my tax collecting booth to follow this man because there's something unique about him. And over time, they come to associate and believe that this is indeed the Messiah of God. And when he does stuff like walk on water and calm storms, things that no human being in history has ever done, they start even wondering to themselves, is he more than just our Messiah? Is this Yahweh in the flesh? I dare not say it because that's blasphemy. 
but you can be assured these ideas are floating in their minds. And so they begin with common assumptions that are correct, but as we get to know the disciples, we get to find out that actually they have some very warped ideas as well. They have very warped ideas about, for example, the kingdom of God and what it is and how it comes. So, for example, they, they believe that they could do God's will by using power to enforce their will upon others and to even vanquish their enemies if possible and if necessary. This is why, for example, Simon Peter confidently pulls out his sword at the Garden of Gethsemane. It's why James and John want to call down fire from heaven and nuke a Samaritan village. They think they're doing God's will. This is how God's will is done. This is how God's kingdom is carried out. We better take up the sword. We better call down fire from heaven because this is how the kingdom's going to come. Isn't that exciting? Well, this core conviction that we can fix the world by exerting power over others, this is as old as human history. When you study uh, the history of world religions, the ancient Greeks, the ancient Egyptians, the Mayans, the Aztecs, the Persians, the Germanic tribes, they all had pictures of their gods that they associated with might and power, and they believed and assumed that they could do their God's bidding by exerting force and power over people to enforce and inflict what they believed is their superior will and ideas on others. And the ancient Israelites were no different. When you read, you know, the story of Israel, and if you begin at the beginning of, uh, of the scriptural record, I think all of us as 21st century modern people, we find stuff in, you know, Joshua and Judges that's pretty like, what? Shocking. Putting every woman, man, child to the sword. There's some pretty nasty stuff, ugly stuff, objectively speaking. How many of you agree? There's some pretty ugly stuff. Polygamy. Human slavery. Bloodshed and violence and war is a way of life. There's some ugly stuff. Why? Why is that in our scriptures? It's because God's dealing with an ancient, morally primitive people. And he's got to start where they're at. He's got to enter into where they are so he can gradually lead them out of it. Does that make sense? You know, I, I think of missionaries who go to different parts of the world. I've heard stories of missionaries who have, for example, they've gone to like the Amazon and they've reached these, these secluded tribes who have had very little, if any, human contact. And these missionaries will encounter these people and observe their way of life and, and be appalled by some of what they witness. They are seeing like some pretty, by our standards, inhumane practices. I've, I've heard the story of missionaries reaching out to a tribe and they practice things like female circumcision and it was brutal. And yet as a missionary going into these tribes, you don't just barge into their culture and expect to change it day one. You're going to get yourself killed for one thing. But that's not how you do it. You enter into where they're at. You learn to accept or even ignore some of what's happening so that over time, gradually, you can lead them into a more life-giving, humanizing way of living. Does that make sense? All right, you guys, maybe, maybe you're just thinking, and that's good, but I, I just like, okay, are, are, is this landing? Do you understand what I'm saying? Um, so this is what God is doing with ancient Israel. 
he starts with the people. They're, they're not 21st century Southern Baptist choir members. These are people, all they know is polygamy. All they've grown up with is paganism. All they know is war and bloodshed. Slavery. This is their life. And God's like, I've got to, I've got to start where they're at. I've got to stoop down to their level, work with them, so that over time, over generations, I can gradually lead them to the Sermon on the Mount. Because that's where I want to take them. But I can't do it on day one. They're not ready. And so the ancient Israelites were no different. But as you get further along in their story and you get to some of these later sections of the Old Testament, some of the Hebrew prophets, you start reading some beautiful portrayals of God and God's character and God's vision for setting the world right. Stuff like this in Micah, Chapter 4, verse 3. I love this verse in Micah. And it will be up on the screen momentarily. Mm. There it is. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. I don't know about you. I can't wait for that day. Can I get a witness? And that's a beautiful vision you find right there in the Old Testament. This isn't New Testament. This is Old Testament where a guy like Micah is starting to catch a glimpse of what God is truly like. And we read this beautiful vision where, where actually we learn God doesn't desire human violence and bloodshed and war. This is not part of God's vision for humankind. God desires peace and harmony and what the Jews called shalom to cover the earth. That's what God wants. And it's a vision not just restricted to Israel. It's for all four corners of the globe. Yes, God has a chosen people. He's got a special relationship with Israel, but he does it because it's through him that he wants to reach the entire world. And ultimately, that's what he accomplishes in his son, Jesus Christ. But what we need to know as it pertains to this passage we're looking at today in Luke is that this was not, what you're seeing here in Micah, this was not the dominant view of God in the first century. They were still hanging on to very primitive ideas that God is a God of, he's an agent of war for us and against them. And I think at least part of the problem is, man, they were living under the weight of these oppressive pagan foreign powers for hundreds of years. The Assyrians, Babylonians, Persians, Greeks, Seleucids. Now they're being ruled over by Rome, in some ways the worst of all. They were vicious. They had a tendency to be very unjust towards the, the people of Israel. And they were tired of it. And they've been crying out for hundreds of years, God, when are you coming? When are you going to raise up this figure? Deliver us. Save us. And so their vision of this Messiah became formed by their own imaginations. Their own carnal imaginations. And so the God of war and victory was much more palatable to them than this God of peace. And as a consequence, they had a vision of Messiah that followed suit. This vision of a peaceful Messiah just didn't gain much currency in the first century world. They had a much more militarized, politicized vision of Messiah. Once again, they believe Messiah, whenever Messiah comes, 
He's going to lead us into a violent revolt just like Judah Maccabee 150 years before. He's going to hand out swords, form us into a militia. We're going to kick some Roman butt, put them in their place, set up the sovereignty of Israel, and Messiah will rule and reign over the entire world. This is what they imagine. This is what they're thinking when they hear terms like kingdom of God. And it's why their favorite synonym for Messiah was son of David. Because in their minds, that's who he's going to be like. He's going to wield the sword like David, lead us into battle like David, lead us into victory like David. So you can imagine how shocking it must have been for these 12 men, these 12 disciples. When Jesus in one breath tells them, hey, guess what? I am indeed your Messiah. I'm the one you've been praying for and hoping for. And in the very next breath, he says, oh, and by the way, I'm going to be rejected, suffer, and die. These are two irreconcilable statements in their minds. You cannot put these thoughts together. They're assuming Messiah is going to come conquer our enemies. Jesus is saying, actually, newsflash, I'm not coming to conquer your enemies. I'm coming to lay my life down, and I'm going to be killed by your enemies for the sake of your enemies so that I can come and condemn and judge this way of living, this orientation of humanity. And when I'm raised and ascended to the Father's right hand, I'm going to become the Lord of heaven and earth, ruling a whole new era called the kingdom of God that's not built on hatred and violence and bloodshed and us versus them hostility, but is, is encased and absorbed within the shalom of God's presence and glory where the entire human race under my authority is going to dwell together in unity and harmony in the kingdom of God. That's what Jesus has come to do. They have no imagination for that. They have no vision for that. So they can't hear what he's saying. To make matters even worse, Jesus tells them, and I'll tell you this, not only am I going to be killed, but your chief priests, your elders, your scribes, your religious leaders, they will play a role in my death. And what you need to know is that all of those people I just mentioned, they were their religious heroes. They're the folks that everybody looks up to and admires in first century Israel. They're like the Billy Grahams of that day. And Jesus is saying, hey, all of those guys you look up to because they're so righteous and true, turns out they're not so righteous and true. They're going to oppose me. And I'm just telling you this on the front end. It's like he's saying to them, I mean, you get to see how this turns everything upside down. Everything you thought you knew about God, everything you thought you knew about Messiah, everything you thought you knew about religious leadership and your religion, everything you thought you knew about who's on the inside and who's on the outside, it's wrong. It's wrong. And if you're going to join in this radical kingdom that I'm inaugurating, Jesus is telling them, you're going to have to scrap everything you thought you knew and build it up from the ground up. And when you do it, listen to my teaching and follow my example, but hold everything else loosely. And be ready to let it go if necessary. Which, by the way, I think is always the most appropriate posture for us as growing believers. I've been in church long enough, 41 years, to, to know that sometimes we think we know a whole lot more than we do. Did you hear what I said? Sometimes we think we know a whole lot more than we do about this stuff. And it's best for us to anchor ourselves to Jesus and the creedal foundations of the church and hold the rest of our theology loosely. Now you, think, you would think that Jesus has already done everything he could do to shock the daylights out of the disciples. But he's got one more thing to shock them with. 
And as their minds are already spinning, he tells them, oh, and by the way, not only am I going to be killed and your heroes are going to be part of it, but whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. Well, this is just great. I could see them saying First, you tell us you're the Messiah, but you're going to get killed. Our heroes are going to do it. They're going to be part of it. And now you're calling us to follow your example and live in that direction? This is mind-boggling. He explicitly uses the phrase, he says, take up your cross. You know, these days in our culture, we don't hear this right. Because the cross is like a universally loved symbol. It's a symbol of hope and love and all of this stuff. Even people who aren't really professing followers of Jesus. They still love the cross. It's just whatever. It's got a good vibe to it, so they wear it around their necks. They tattoo it on their arms. It's a good symbol. In the first century Roman world, the cross was nothing more, nothing less than a torture and execution device, period. It would be like today Jesus saying, take up your electric chair. He's saying, let go of the Caesar lifestyle, the sword-wielding lifestyle, the power-over lifestyle, and assume a cross-shaped, Calvary lifestyle, denying of yourself, sacrificing of yourself for the sake of others, including your enemies. God's plan is not to overpower the world God's plan is to transform the world through transformed people. He wants to transform the world by raising up people who live in outrageous, scandalous, self-sacrificial love. He's raising up a people who are willing to give their life for others, including their enemies. He's raising up a people who are willing to lay down their rights. He's raising up a people who will use whatever, whatever power and influence they have, not for their own gain and benefit, but to invest it in the lives of other people. He's raising up people who are not enforcing their will on others, but have come to humbly serve others. In other words, he's come to raise up a cross-shaped people because this is the power that transforms the world. It's counterintuitive. It doesn't make sense. What makes sense is let's enforce our will. Let's get power and let's enforce it. But the Calvary-centered way of life, the cross-shaped life, is the Jesus way that actually transforms the world. And it takes faith to embrace it. Yet there are many people who believe in Jesus who still find it, find it very difficult to entrust themselves to this kind of path of life. They don't even have an imagination for it. They don't even envision what it could look like for them. They don't have categories. And so they just continue to attend their church, but remain conformed to the pattern of this world where we cling to our lives and cling to our rights and adopt a hostile, even hateful posture towards those we contend with. But the true God, when he flexes his omnipotent muscle, it looks like Calvary. The true God overcomes evil through self-sacrificial love, not through coercive force. And the true God calls us to follow this pattern 
in this way of living. As Ephesians 5.1 says, be imitators of God. And as we talk about all the time, you want to know what God is like, you look at his son, Jesus Christ. He says, you know me, you know the Father. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. The image of the invisible God, the exact representation of God's very essence. And this is what he calls us to. This is what it looks like to follow God and to serve God. It looks like a life where we follow this pattern of denying ourselves for the sake of others. And it's the power that actually transforms the world. I love, you know, reading about the early stage of Christian history during the first 300 years. There are great resources out there, resilient faith, patient ferment of the early church, where you can learn about the first 300 years of Christian history. And I'll tell you a couple things that are pretty wild about that era. Is number one, Christianity was the most explosive movement on earth. It grew at a rate of 40% per decade. Started on the day of Pentecost with 120 people. 300 years later, the Roman emperor is converting to Christianity. Whether it's genuine or not, there's debate. Some people think he was just doing it for political expediency, but that's besides the point. What I'm trying to show you is that Christianity took over the planet in 300 years, 40% per decade. It was the most mind-blowingly explosive movement you can imagine. But the more spectacular thing is not just how it grew or, or that it grew, but how it grew. Because when you read the writings of the early Christian leaders, starting with the New Testament, but even beyond, when you read some of their writings in the first 300 years, I'll tell you what you never find them commenting on. You never find them talking about, here's how we can grow our churches numerically. Here's how we can attract more people and impress them and keep them coming. Here's some, hey, here, here, Corinthian church, I'm the Apostle Paul. Let me tell you a new PR gimmick that'll excite people to come to your church. He never comments on that, on that. They never talked about that stuff. That's the Holy Spirit's job. What they did talk about is, how can we be faithful to the call of Christ? How can we become a people who are increasingly learning to love our enemies well? How can we become a people who are patient under hardship, who are able to patiently endure persecution when it comes in a cross-shaped pattern? How can we be a people who radically forgive our enemies? This is what they were obsessed with. And it produced a movement that the world found irresistible. The pagan world took notice of these people saying, these people are nuts. They're actually loving their enemies. They're actually giving up their lives to be burned at the stake. And they're enduring it as they're praying and worshiping this God they call Jesus. They're taking care of the poor and the marginalized. And it just caused people to say, I want that in my life. Look at what's possible. I want to be part of that. What I'm trying to tell you is that there's a beauty and an allure to Christianity when it's authentically lived that people find nearly irresistible when they encounter it. 
and it renders every church, church marketing tactic and church growth gimmick obsolete and irrelevant. And I'm at a stage in my life where I'm kind of done with all of that. And what I want to be, first, first of all, is a genuine follower of my crucified Lord. And I want to trust him that following a cross-shaped pattern is actually the way that wins in the end. Because every sacrificial death is followed by some form of resurrection. It doesn't look that way on Good Friday. The last point I want to make is Jesus tells them the Son of Man must be killed, and on the third day, he's, he's going to be raised to life. Now, the disciples didn't hear this. They, it just kind of went through one ear and out the other because what they've heard billions of times ever since they were babies is that Messiah is coming to kick Roman butt. This was a whole new idea. Actually, Messiah is coming to lay his life down, then he's going to be raised. It just, they, they don't know how to process this. this they, they don't know what to do with it. They just kind of put it to the side. But what Jesus is actually trying to tell them is what we're talking about right now. This is the way that wins in the end. He's giving them a promise of victory. He's telling them, I'm going to suffer and die. And if you're following me, you've got to be willing to suffer and die. But I'm also going to be raised victoriously from the grave, and so will you. So trust this pattern. Trust this way of life. God's going to overcome evil, not through military force and conquest, but through the power of resurrection. Love will prevail. Light will dispel darkness. God will win in the end, and evil will be eradicated through the power of a cross-shaped life. It doesn't look like it on Good Friday, but that, that's why this thing takes faith. It's why it takes spirit-inspired imagination. Jesus is saying, whatever happens to you, however threatened you feel, however painful things get, however insane things look in our culture, however irrational things look out there, however bleak it may look, keep carrying the cross, keep loving, keep serving, and trust that this power, this power of this kind of life, it's going to win the, way, the day in the end. And it may not look like it in this Good Friday season of world history, but on the Easter morning of the cosmos, when the kingdom is established in complete fulfillment, you're going to see how each and every act of self-sacrificial love you engaged in helped move the world forward to this end. And this applies to every area of our lives. Nathaniel, uh, would you come and just begin to play? Where's Nathaniel? Noah, will you get up here and play until Nathaniel comes? There he is. Hanging on everywhere, taking notes. Ben, you'll come in just a moment, but this applies to every, every, every area of our lives. When you're in an argument with your spouse and you're tempted to lash out, remember you're called to carry the cross. When you're having an argument with your neighbor over religion or politics or the color of their house or the property line or whatever silly thing and you want to squash this person, put them in their place, remember you're called to carry the cross. That doesn't mean you have to become a doormat. What it means is whatever you think, whatever you say, whatever you do, it looks like this. And it expresses that this is a person Christ felt was worth dying for. 
and they're made in God's image. And I'm going to treat them with that dignity even in the midst of our disagreement. Whenever you feel called to invest more of your time in a particular cause or ministry, but there's another part of you that doesn't want to be inconvenienced, remember you're called to carry the cross, which always involves some degree of inconvenience. Whenever you're called, whenever you feel called to invest money in a cause or a ministry or help someone in need, but there's another part of you that says, man, I'd rather spend that on myself or pamper myself. Or at least if I do this good deed, I want to blast it out on social media so the whole world knows about this good deed that I've done. Remember you're called to carry the cross and serve in secret. Whenever someone disparages you or or discriminates you against you because of your race and you're tempted to lash out and squash that person, remember you're called to carry the cross and bless them. That doesn't mean that you let this person pollute you and you give them that authority. But you, call, you follow the cross pattern of life and you bless your enemies. And whenever you feel mistreated or overlooked because of your gender and you're tempted to squash that person, remember you're called to carry the cross. Every aspect of our life, we're invited to become cross-shaped by the power of God.